I sent my manuscript to Huia and they said, we want to publish it. Well, that was easy. That was easy. <laughs> I thought, where's my rejection letters? I, told I, was going to, I was told I was going to get 50 rejection letters before I would get published. Welcome to Ears Wide Open, a literary podcast that is a project of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road. Tonight I have got Gina Cole with me, who is a short story writer, and a poet, just a short story writer. I have written some poetry. You have been known to dabble in poetry. I have poetry. been known to dabble. Welcome Gina, it's so nice to have you with us. Thank you, nice to be here. Great. So you're going to read us something to begin with, I believe. Yes, I'm going to read... Uh, from the beginning of one of my stories in my collection of short stories called Black Ice Matter. And this is the beginning of a story called Till. And Till is the name for glacial rock that is carried along by a glacier. Till. He fell into a blue world. He'd been collecting ice samples with the team, gingerly making his way across the glacier, prodding the snow in front of him with an ice axe to check its solidity before taking a step. The other researchers followed behind him, descending a gentle slope with great caution, their woolen hats bright red against the snow. His axe handle had sunk to halfway, meeting with enough resistance to give him confidence. As he leaned into the snow, his foot sank to the ankle. A deep patch, he thought, but then his foot sank further, up to the shin, then to his knee, and then he knew he had stepped onto a snow bridge. With a puff of snow, the ice collapsed beneath him, and he dropped into freefall in a rush of blue and white. He landed upright with a hard thud. Snow and ice rained down on his head, leaving him stunned. His left boot was twisted and wedged into a V at the bottom of the crevasse. Pain shot through his foot, ankle, leg. The ankle was broken, he was sure of it. Frantically, he dug his leg out before the snow's crystalline grip solidified around the boot. The sheer ice walls around him were dark cobalt, swirling into a cathedral of misty cyan over his head and out into a jag of white sunshine. A few metres along the crevasse out of reach, the orange weave of his high tensile ropes rested against the ice, and beyond that he saw the silver blade of his ice axe glinting where it had fallen. He yelled into the azure slit of sky, but he had fallen into an echo chamber, and his voice reverberated and bounced back to him in frightening waves. He slumped against the cold surfaces. That was when he saw her. Oh, thank you. So I've read that story and some of your others, uh, and it really struck me the adventurous settings that you've got in them. So that one is obviously, I don't think it's specific about exactly, well, it's mentioned Sherpas, so I guess it's in Nepal um, somewhere, but it's not specific about exactly where it is. There's another one set on the Rootburn track, um, and so this sense of adventurousness and lots of things happening in the outside world. How do you decide on what is a good setting for a given story? 
I, I sometimes choose setting from what I'm interested in at the time or an experience that has inspired me. For instance, that um, character I wrote about um, trapped in the crevasse, um, at that time I was interested in ice and glaciers and I wanted to write about those things from as many perspectives as possible. And the story about the Rootburn track was inspired by a six-day hike I took on the Greenstone track and the Rootburn track in Fiordland last summer. So I, I'm, I find a lot of inspiration in settings in the natural environment and, and how people interact with their environment and how I think that can provide a lot of opportunity for investigating character and plot and metaphor and theme. And how do you know when you've got the right story for the setting? So you want to write about ice... Hmm. And what is the feeling when you think, oh yes, it's going to be a man in a crevasse, and how do you get there? Well, that story I actually started writing at a seminar that was taught by Eleanor Catton. And she she gave us a specific sort of instruction about what to write. And I I gave myself a kind of a a rule to follow for that story which was that I wasn't going to name the character um, and I thought well where can I put a character that I'm not going to name and I just thought well I'll put him down a crevasse and see what happens so you know it was a really an experiment to what begin was with. the rule that Eleanor had given you I'm just trying to think what it was. <laughs> you put you on the spot yeah it was it was I can't remember exactly what it was but the, it, it was it was something that inspired me to think, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this this rule for myself. And I, I think it was something about setting rules for yourself or setting constraints around your writing and how um, a constraint can actually free you rather than constrain you. Because if you've got, if you can write about anything at all, it can be quite... Um, difficult whereas if you're if you're told to write within a, a specific constraint that frees you from trying to think of anything at all and and you are free to think within that constraint which is easier than writing about anything and do you still do that in your writing now sometimes pick a rule for yourself yes sometimes I do yes yes I quite like constraints because um, counterintuitively they free you mm. I think I think that's true. I find that too. Mm. Your Fijian culture and background weave in and out of the stories. And the back of your book has been blurbed, as they say, by um, Selena Tusitala Marsh. And she says, Fijian-infused, queer-inflected and crafted with legal precision. And she's referring to your background as a lawyer mm. with the legal precision. How do your various identities drive your writing? And I wondered, even as I wanted to ask you this question, I thought, oh, you know, it's of course you always will get this question, being, you know, mm. of colour and queer and, you know, you, people will want to know about these things. So do you feel some responsibility to your identities or do you just write the stories that come to you and they are what they are because of who you are? I think that I write the stories that come to me and I inevitably write story through my own lenses of identity and culture and race and gender and class and sexuality. And so I think I represent my different identities in that way um, because I think even if I were to write a story from a completely different perspective, first I, I think I would also want to 
well, first of all, I'd want to do some research to make sure I got it right, but um, I'd also want to bring some emotional resonance to the story, and in order to do that, I would need to tap into my own emotions, and which, of course, inevitably, I'm informed by my experience as a queer, part Fijian, Kiwi woman. So I, I suppose there's a part of me in every character I write because they come out of my experience. So, I, yeah. Does it feel like a burden at all? Like, do you get asked these questions and think, oh, just read the work? Or are you sort of happy to have a chance to talk about it? No, I'm happy to have a chance to talk about it because um, I suppose that's my point of difference. So it's, it's a good thing for me. <laughs> I remember being told when my first book came out, being the middle-class white girl that I am, saying, it's going to be very difficult to attract any attention to this. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, that's a bit rough, but okay, fair enough. <laughs> oh, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> yeah, 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 but it was true, I think. I mean, it is, you know, in the in the reality of kind of marketing of work, um, it's useful to have a hook of some kind. Have you noticed that? Yeah, um... Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because you know there have there has been there have been statistics that have been looked into, and I think um, Tina Makariti's um, speech on the, the the pole of the meeting house, and, and she talked about the house of literature in, in New Zealand and the statistics of 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 who gets published, and that it's by and large it's well, it's something like one percent of Pacific writers get published. So, I don't feel like I have a an in mm. um, to publishing because of my Fijian heritage. In fact, quite the opposite. So, tell us then your journey to becoming a writer. I always mm. think this is interesting. So, you think of yourself as a writer now? Be brave. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose I started thinking of myself, well, I started seriously thinking about writing about 10 years ago. Um, and I've, like most writers, I've always been a reader and a writer, right, from the, when, it, when I could read and write. And I've been fortunate to have people around me who've always, been, always encouraged me to read and write. And as I say, I started to take this seriously about 10 years ago, and I started taking writing classes and developing craft and, and developing a regular practice. Um, but I was working full-time as a lawyer, so I was doing this in my spare time and I didn't think of myself as a writer. I entered, and I entered a few competitions and I had a story published in Takahe, um Literary Journal. And then in 2012 I enrolled in a postgraduate diploma in English at Massey University, which is an online course and my plan, I was still working as a lawyer, and my plan was to complete one paper per semester until I'd completed this diploma. And what had driven you to that? Like, what, what were you hoping? Well, it was someone I met, again, just by chance, who I was, I was hiking in a group of women, hike, doing a hike, and I was talking to this woman that I hadn't met before um, about my secret writing and what I didn't realise was that her name was Jenny Lorne and she was the head of school of English at Massey University. 
So she thought, here's a right candidate. Yes. And she said, well, this is what you should do. And I'll give you my email address. And I'll, she took my email address and she sent me all this information. And I thought, well, I'll do this. It sounds amazing. So the universe sent this yeah, to you. Yeah, yeah, literally. And so that's where I started kind of honing my craft, I suppose. That, that sort of kind of kept going. And around that time, I bumped into my friend Selena Tusitala Marsh. And I told her what I was doing. And she said, well, you should come to Auckland University and do the Masters of Creative Writing at Auckland University. Which I, So I applied for that and I was accepted. And, in and that's so affirming, isn't it? Yes. To get in. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. 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 Because I had to submit work and I submitted work that I had done at the Massey Diploma course. So mm. it was kind of like feeding itself, I think. And I wrote... Black Ice Matter in that year, in 2013, on the um, Masters of Creative Writing at Auckland University. And that went on to be published in 2016 by Huya. And then in 2017, that book won the Hubert Church Prize for Best First Book of Fiction at the Ockham Book Awards. And I was still practising as a full-time lawyer, so I was kind of starting to call myself a barrister-slash-writer. Last uh, that's last year. Once you'd won the best first yes. book award, you thought, oh, perhaps I might go with this writer title a little bit. Yes, yeah. And yeah. then last year I enrolled to do a PhD in creative writing back at Massey with Jenny, and I realised that doing a PhD and being a full time lawyer is just not going to work. So I'm I, laughing, listeners, I'm with sympathy. <laughs> yeah. So I closed my law practice. Wow. How did that feel? So good. So good. <laughs> Great. I've been a lawyer for 27 years. Yeah. And I was, before that I was at law school for four years. So yeah. I've been doing law for 31 years. So felt great to stop. Congratulations. Thank you. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And um, so now I am a student sometimes. And I came back from overseas on Saturday and... On the customs document that you have to give to customs, I wrote my occupation as a writer. Wow. So congratulations. now I consider myself to be a writer. Yeah, well, that's a great story. <laughs> so do you want to tell us a little bit about how the book got published? Because that can be an interesting sort of story as well. Black Ice Matter? Yeah. I sent my manuscript to Huia and they said, we want to publish it. Well, that was easy. That was easy. <laughs> I thought... Where's my rejection letters? I told I was going. To, I was told I was going to get fifty rejection letters before I would get published. Sounds like it was a mature manuscript, though. If you'd spent a year on it, and then it was a couple of years later that yes. you sent it off. Yes, yes, I had. I when I got it back at the end of the masters, I had comments from the assessors, two two assessors. So I worked on it, and then sent it in after I'd worked on it. Yes, it was. It had, had, had been through a lot of edits. That's fantastic. Uh, so I wondered about, so you're a short story writer, and as we said earlier, constraint can be um, productive, and obviously the short story is in some ways a constrained form. Yep. So I was wondering about influences on you and who, has, who you've read and who shaped your writing as a short story writer. 
Well, the first book of short stories that really had an impact on me, which I read when I was about 12 years old, was Pōnamu Pōnamu by Witi Ahimaira. I was just enthralled by that book, and I remember... The nanny's playing the cards. The nanny's playing the cards. Um, I was so captivating, those stories um, about Māori grandmothers and aunties, and I could, at 12 years of age, I could re-relate, relate to them because they reminded me of my Fijian aunties and grandmothers, and, and I just loved that book. It's and, such an important work of New Zealand fiction, mm, isn't it? Mm. You know, I mean, I just... I remember studying at at primary school, I think, yeah, you know, some yeah. of those stories. And, I mean, I went to primary school in Kelvin in the, you know, whitest part of the country. But they still resonated, mm. you know, as an important thing to know about. Yeah, about here. they're just extraordinary um, and really had a huge impact on me. I also... Dad used to order those Reader's Digest books of classics. The condensed ones? Well, no, they were... Like these blue books here. Oh yes, she's pointing at some beautiful bound blue books behind us. Plenty of classic books in here if anyone needs any. Yes, and, and I um, I remember reading one called Short Stories by Oscar Wilde, which I still have, and I just loved those stories. I, I thought they were weird and wonderful. And there was there were books like Jules Verne's, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and um, more recently, of course, I, I while I was doing the Masters, I read The New Yorker and I listened to podcasts um, by Deborah Treisman, the the fiction writer, um, fiction editor at The New Yorker, and I loved lots of those stories. Um, um, writers, short story writers like Annie Prue and Raymond Carver. You know, there's a really I don't know if you know this about Raymond Raymond Carver, but there's an interesting kind of um, what's the right word, controversy around his work. Have you read about this at all? No. So apparently the story goes that he was very heavily edited by his editor. Oh, you so said... his very characteristic style of, you know, very laconic and clipped, you know, writing is this kind of idea that it's really a joint effort with his editor. Yes, I have read about that now that you, you uh, say that. I have read about that and I have actually seen some of the... Um, the proofs, the actual proofs of his writing, which with the edits in them from the editor, and yes, they were heavily edited. So, what do you think about that? Does it matter? Well, that that's that seemed extreme actually. When I saw a page of what had happened to his, how the editor had edited his work, I just thought that was quite extreme, because it yeah, it did seem to be a joint effort in that case that his editor had contributed as much to the writing as he had. But I don't know if I'd like my writing to be that heavily edited. What was your experience of being edited like? It was actually really good to have another pair of eyes on the work because the editor, was she was wonderful, Daisy Coles, I think her name was. She, she just pointed things out to me that I hadn't even thought about, and it just made the work better, much better. So I think editors are fantastic. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a great process too. I think for you take forward to your next piece of work, mm. you know what the editor's given you on your last one, mm. and for someone to look at it that attentively is such a yes. gift. Yes. Yeah, I just found it really helpful. Even though you've worked it and worked it and worked it. Yes, but then she made suggestions that even though I had read this 
particular sentence or this particular story hundreds and hundreds of times, she would make suggestions that had never even occurred to me, which I just thought were really helpful. Does any stick out? Like, what kind of things would she say to you? Were they about language or about image or the plot or...? Sometimes it was about specific words or sentence structure and sometimes it was about plot. But it was never as invasive as what happened to Raymond Carver. (laughs) It was just, you know, kind of really polishing. Mm. Mm. Awesome. So is there a novel in you? And I ask this because your stories have such a lot of plot in them. Mm. There's a lot goes on. Mm. in a, in a um, Gina Cole short story. And so I was wondering, are you incubating something longer? Yes, I am working currently on a novel for my PhD. And I can't say too much about it at yeah. this time, except to say that it is in the genre of speculative fiction or science fiction. Cool. And is it set in Aotearoa or is it set somewhere Aotearoa else? Aotearoa and the Pacific. Wow. Hmm. That sounds amazing. So have Huya given you an enormous advance? No, but I do have the the standard clause in the contract which says they have the first right of refusal for my second book. So see, how they, see what they think of it. Yeah, oh, that's so exciting. How far into the PhD are you? This is my second year. And will you be finished at the end of next year? Um, well, it's a four-year degree. Oh, okay, so right. Wow, so you've got... 2020. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Are you enjoying it? Oh, yes. Yes, I am. That's why I gave up the law. Yes, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. The two writing degrees that I've done, I've found hard in parts. Mm. You know, where you're sort of sitting there thinking, trying to drag things out of yourself. Yes, it's not easy. I can tell you that you would know. It's, it's not easy sitting down and having a regular writing practice and trying to get words on the page. Yeah, well, that's great. Thank you so much, Gina. That was really fantastic to talk to you. Is there anything else that you want to say that I haven't asked you about? No, that's great. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks very very much for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. This has been Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of The Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road. You can come in if you're in Auckland, drink some coffee, buy a book, come to one of our events and have some free wine. Uh, And if you're not in Auckland, if you go onto our website, you can sign up to my book bag and you will be sent packages of books hand-picked to your home address throughout the year. It's a great service.